This is Queer Diagnosis. I'm your host, Zaria. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm Shreetha, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Cheryl Leong, a marriage and family therapist and founder of Leading with Consciousness. Hi, Ms. Leong. Could you please introduce yourself with your pronouns? I'm Cheryl, uh, pronouns she, they. Could you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Um, I currently live on Ohlone land, occupied by San Francisco, and uh, am an immigrant from Singapore. So what inspired you to become a marriage and family therapist? Uh, Therapy runs in my family. My mother is a psychotherapist and uh, became a psychotherapist sometime in her 40s. So I was already a teenager and um, this was in the context of Singapore. And so I think seeing her work and um, how interesting and inspiring that kind of work was um, kind of propelled me on the journey of, oh, hey, psychology is really interesting. And then from there, um, psychotherapy. I think that's really cool that you said that your family is mostly in therapy, um, because I wish my family was mostly in therapy. <laughs> um, I I think that's great that you are able to kind of continue that lineage. And um, when people think of healthcare, they may not initially think of therapy so do you consider yourself a healthcare professional? And how has your experience as a counselor varied between Singapore and the United States? Yeah, gosh, I have a long answer to that. I think that the separation of mind and body was something strictly from Euro-American tradition. And that when you look at all other indigenous cultures, um, non-Western cultures, the mind and body was never separate. And so when you talk about mental health, it was never separate from physical health. If you go to see an acupuncturist, for example, in China, um, they will also be your psychiatrist. You may have a pain in your chest, but they will connect it to something that's emotionally happening and something energetic happening. And so the mind and body was never separate. And so the whole notion that psychotherapy is not healthcare really comes from that Euro-Western um, construct. And it's taken Euro-American um, mental health as an institution and as a, as a field of study generations to get to the point where they're finally seeing, oh, wait, there, there are all these connections between mind and body. If you're depressed, your hormones are different. There's swelling in the body. There's all these sort of biological evidence now to show that your emotional health is deeply connected to your body and that this separation of mind and body was probably something that has held Western psychotherapy back in terms of understanding mental health. And so I think that it was um, this product of sort of severing mind and body that's led to how mental health is seen as separate from everything else in in medical health care, which I think is is uh, deeply problematic. Um, I think what has also made it complicated specifically in the United States is insurance companies, health insurance companies actually separate um, mental health care from the rest of health care. And sometimes they actually separate the networks. and. Um, so I, I think that because because so much of our healthcare system has been and mental health care system has been sort of dictated by health insurance companies for so many decades now that it's been so profit driven that um, mental health care has never sort of been given priority um, by insurance companies and. Uh, Something that like psychotherapy should, for example, be seen as preventative care, for example, um, you know, even if you're not clinic, if your symptoms aren't clinically significant enough to meet criteria for a diagnosis, psychotherapy can be preventative care, for example, like that could be one way that we could look at it. But because health insurance companies have really structured everything so horribly and, and it really doesn't maximize um, benefit for patients or people who need mental health care, um, we're really sort of being dictated by these insurance healthcare systems that really aren't really serving mental health at all. They're, they're, they're mostly serving uh, profits, um, of, you know, insurance, healthcare profits. So 
No, I think it's really interesting that you talk about like the connection between mind and body because I think when I was first in therapy and Zari and I've talked about this, one of the first questions my therapist would ask me when I like something happened, she's like, well, how did it feel in your body? And I was like, what are you like the idea of contextualizing my mental health within how I felt in my physical body felt like such a foreign practice. And I think sometimes I still have to kind of remind myself to do it. Or if I'm feeling something, I have to be like, okay, this is because of my mental health or like, so that's been a practice I've definitely been trying to work on and I was wondering like did you have any clients who had a similar response when you were trying to explain that connection where they were like what are you talking about yeah and and you know even that question how does that feel in your body this is like a more recent psychotherapy type thing to ask if you look at how psychotherapy was in the time of Freud there you know he probably (laughs) wasn't going to be asking that in in Victorian Europe right um I don't normally start with that question, and I think I think it really depends on where the client is. There are many open doors to doing psychotherapy, and every client has an open door. Some people have um, their cognition as an open door. Some people have their behavior as an open door. Some of them have emotions as an open door, and some people have their physical sort of sensations or bodily uh, sort of felt senses as an open door. And so depending on where the client is, how how they come into the therapy room and how they start talking about what's going on for them, that tells me what the open door is. All of these things are connected, mind, body, um, you know, cognition, everything is connected. The question is, what is the open door for my client and and what is sort of the entryway for us to connect? So <laughs> it it is sort of a strange question to ask when, when we think of traditional psychotherapy. And it's amazing that this is such a new question for Western psychotherapy when, in, again, all these indigenous cultures um, for thousands of years, even if you look at Taoism, which existed in um, East Asia, like you know, a couple thousand years ago, people were already asking this question and and understanding emotions and mental health from the viewpoint of not just the body, but also the environment, how your emotions are connected to the wind, the water, you know, your the ecosystem, all of these things were energetic and connected in your communities, how human beings were connected, right? All these concepts are just beginning to be sort of understood from an empirical scientific sort of mental health point of view in the West. But again, traditionally, all these other cultures have understood this for a long time and have had such deep wisdom around it. Um, I think that uh, Western mental health has had that sort of arrogance because it's come from this colonial European colonial history and has never sort of seen the rest of the world as having anything valuable um, aside from something you can objectify or take or appropriate in some way. And 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 so I, I think that people are beginning to see that it's not just mind-body connected, it's mind-body connection, it's also community and relational connections and, and the ecosystem and how all of that connects to your emotional and mental health. Another long answer to that. <laughs> Actually, I'm learning a lot because in therapy, I never really know... Um... Like that question that Shrita asked, the um, where do you feel it in your body? I hate that question because I can never really answer it. Um, but I was just wondering, so you're talking about this. You've also worked in Singapore as well. If this question is pr- relatively new in America, what kind of questions would you ask somebody in Singapore at this point in time? Well, I mean, I think Singapore is an English-speaking country and has gone through, you know, a history of British colonization. And so it's very much globalized and very much influenced by European tradition. So I see a mix of the two going on. And when I was practicing there... um, you know, there were people who understood what mental health was from a Western point of view, and they would come into therapy already beginning to sort of talk about the mind. They would have a harder time connecting the body to the mind. But there were people who wouldn't see a psychotherapist right away. They would instead feel something in their body and go see their doctor. So their doctors would be the ones going, okay, you've got pain in your chest. Okay, you have a headache. Oh, you've got a stomach ache. Um, You know, you're having trouble sleeping. You have a lot of energy at nights, right? So they go into the doctor's office and they make, they have these complaints. 
And the doctor then was the, is the one who determines, okay, actually, I think you might need some counseling or some psychotherapy because these, these sound like also emotional things that might be connected. So these are the, the sort of clients that I would see that would already have an understanding of, oh, wait, my doctor has already told me these are also emotional things. So I would work closely with their doctor. I would work closely with um, a religious figure if, if the religious figure was part of their life or their families or community. And so it was a very different way of working. Um, I think that now that I've um, worked here in San Francisco and work with a lot of Asian American families, I think depending on where people are, I see similar things as well. Um, so um, it just depends on, again, like th that open door, like where where is the client? How are they coming into the therapy room? And um, the mind body question is, is like, it really is um, kind of a, a coin toss. Like, I'm not sure where people are when they come in until I get to know them a little bit. So you're referring back to this idea of going, walking to a therapy room a lot. Um, I haven't walked into a therapy room personally, just because I started therapy on Zoom. <laughs> and continue that pretty much. So how are you able to gauge that um, with the pandemic? Is it the same feel? Like, how do they, you know, get on Zoom? How do they, uh, I guess, behave with you at the beginning? Yeah, I, I, I can't say for sure. Sometimes it's in the language that they use, vocabulary. Even though I'm only looking at a person from the chest up, I can see things in their facial expression. I can see the jawline, what muscles are tightening up. Um, sometimes I see shoulders like that, um, like kind of towards their ears. And I'm like, okay, so there's tension right there. Or sometimes they're sitting um, in a way that uh, like they have their sort of head sort of jutting out and their neck sort of uncomfortable. So I could tell that tension is being held that way. So sort of looking at what's going on, even chest up gives gives me a sense of what's happening. And then when I do sort of more um, of the, you know, mindfulness practices or um, body based practices that involve breathing or um, muscle consciousness, um, like progressive muscle relaxation, it gives people an understanding like, oh, okay, when I clench my muscles this way, and then I slowly release it, and then sort of they start to understand where stress is held in their body, and what the difference is between holding something in your muscle versus letting it go, um, sort of helping people understand how the body is so deeply connected to all these different emotions um, takes some time. Um, there's um, I think with in particular with anxiety, um, it is so much like a body thing, right? When you're hyperventilating, I'm like, okay, it's you're, you're not even, you know, breathing all the way in. It's sort of you're hyperventilating. If you have um, tension in your belly, right? Sometimes people have been anxious for so long. They have felt this tension in their belly for so long. They don't even know it's there anymore, and it's become sort of something they've tolerated for years and years. And so helping people get to the point where they're like, oh, wait, I guess this like relaxing their be belly muscles for the first time and then noticing what it means to be tense again. Something like that just sort of helps people see like, wow, you mean my life could be without this tension? OK, let's 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 talk about that. Right. This is the level of discomfort I've been living with my whole life. Like, how, how can I learn to sort of you know, I, I have a right to be actually more relaxed. Okay, I didn't know that, right? So um, it, it's sort of, that's sort of how I work with the body. I feel like I'm getting the answer key to what my therapist has been doing for, I guess, a year, over a year now. I kind of wish that I had this before therapy ended today for me. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about how COVID specifically has affected your work as a counselor? Um, I think because I work so much with the Asian population, um, I think in particular East Asians and Southeast Asians, um, you know, with the COVID-19 discrimination and Stop Asian Hate movement, uh, I think I've seen just a collective trauma around what's been going on and um, having to do this over Zoom versus seeing people in person. That's that's sort of been a transition for me because I'm used to you know, someone physically coming into my room. And now it's like, I have to make do with a, you know, a, a video screen. Um, that was a transition. Even learning how to use Zoom was, was tough. I like was so resistant to the technology 
and and now I'm comfortable with it, but I definitely feel that people got a lot more from me when they saw me in person. And um yeah, I think I think those are sort of the major differences um in terms of just what's happened since COVID-19. Um I I went through the SARS outbreak in Singapore back in 2002, I think. And it was a similar situation where um, it sort of gave us a glimpse as to how this would happen in the future. Um, But it was sort of, there was no Zoom back then. It was people coming into your therapy room with a mask on and then me disinfecting my couch and disinfecting and washing my hands after each person came in back then. There was no Zoom option. Um, So... I think having this Zoom option was sort of like a relief for me because I remember back in 2002 when there wasn't all this technology and you couldn't use video chat back then or people didn't think that they, you know, it was possible back then. Um, It was pretty stressful in Asia at the time as a therapist and you were sort of an essential worker, right? Um, So I remember between then and, and now, like, I think actually this was a lot safer just to be behind, you know, the video camera. I think you like kind of touched on the like collective trauma because you do work with so many East Asian and Southeast Asian clients. Can you talk about your own experiences with anti-Asian rhetoric in the workplace and maybe even in your personal life, if you feel comfortable talking about that? Yeah, in in my other life as a DEI consultant, um, I've put out information on what to do in workplaces. Um, it's anecdotal, of course, but I, I hear so many stories of, especially in, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, where people were racializing this virus so much. They were talking about China and how this was a China virus. The, the former president went on and on about um, its connection to China. Uh, the World Health Organization put out a warning, right? Well, not a warning, but a, a recommendation to not racialize this virus because of the stigma and and just misinformation that people could have. So I think that there were there have been um sort of insensitive statements in the workplace. Um there are sort of discriminatory things that happen in the workplace for a lot of East Asians and Asians. Um, very similar to post 9-11 where there was a there was a trauma and people became really islamophobic and so people were racially profiled and there were jokes at work and just insensitive statements at work right so these were these are sort of irrational xenophobic um things but i think specifically with COVID 19 people really needed a scapegoat and that was happening in the workplace through jokes and or like subtle things or sometimes really direct aggressions right um, so I, I've sort of tried my best to tell people, organizational leaders, you know, you've got to make zero tolerance type policies very openly and make open statements about this. You've got to give um, Asian employees a safe space to be able to report these things and for managers to have the skills to um, create psychological safety for their teams and make it safe for people to actually tell their managers, oh, hey, this is happening to me. Can you help me? And so these are sort of the the different things that I've put out as a DEI consultant uh, in psychological safety at work is such a huge thing for me. Um, and so yeah, it's it's been a long ride. It's been a year and a half of of advocating for this. I remember putting the first panel out in March, um, right when the pandemic started, because that's when we started seeing hate crimes and and discriminatory things. Um, and so it's been it's been a, a long ride. Do you think that the initiatives you've taken have improved workplaces so far? Is it getting better? It's hard to tell. I I wish there was a better way to measure. The things that I'm doing, um, I know that I've seen organizations put out statements. I've had HR managers tell me it was really helpful and they're going to implement some of these things. Some Asian employees that attend my workshops or um, have heard me speak, some of the employee resource groups have reached out to me to to sort of thank me for the stuff I do. I don't know if I've made an impact. I just know that I'm making connections 
I just know that it's been a rough ride um, and that uh, not a lot of people took it seriously at the start of, of the pandemic, even though it was happening in my neighborhood and, and all this sort of discriminatory things were happening, violence was happening. It wasn't taken seriously until a little later. I think it was... Um, I think it was the beginning of this year where people started taking it more seriously. And unfortunately, even then, I think momentum has sort of um, not been maintained and people have sort of forgotten that these things are still happening. And so the numbers are still going up. They're not going down at all in terms of violence or discrimination. Like all those reports are still going on, not just in the United States, but Australia, Canada. The reports seem to be just sort of... um, relentless in terms of numbers so um yeah I'm not sure if I've made an impact but I'm trying I mean I can definitely say that from your podcast episodes that I've listened to I I had been reading about Asian hate in the news and such but I didn't know anybody personally who had been experiencing it um until one of my classmates our campus didn't mandate vaccines and they didn't say like you have to wear your mask or well actually they did but not everyone was following that rule but long story short, my friend was walking back home from class and he was wearing his mask and some kid, like another student, just walked up to him and was like, I'm not going to repeat the words that he said, but he basically ridiculed him for wearing the mask and he said some hateful things. And then at that point I was like, oh, this is actually a problem that's, you know, relevant to the people that I know. And not that I didn't care about it more, but then I started to do more research, which is how I came across your podcast. And your podcast really helped me understand, um, you know, why is it important that we stop Asian hate and how do we address that? So as students, um, I'm not sure what structural changes I can make, but do you have any advice for how, like what I can do to stop Asian hate? Yeah, I think I always make it a point to say, if you want to stop Asian hate, you have to stop all kinds of Asian hate, whether it's Islamophobia towards South Asians or West Asians or um, COVID-19 discrimination towards East Asians or Southeast Asians or, um, you know, just looking at the exploitation of labor overseas, right? I think that Stop Asian Hate is sort of a global uh, thing that that we can look at. And it's a really huge continent with a lot of diverse populations. So there's a lot of different kinds of hatred to, to work on. But I think in particular, this um, COVID-19 uh, discrimination where the virus is being racialized towards specifically Chinese hatred and, and uh, anti-Chinese sentiment. I think that the more we deracialize the virus and the more we speak up about deracializing it and resisting the, the direction that um, hatred tends to go, <laughs> I think that with U.S.-China relations continuing to get more tense, um, I mean, the tensions have always sort of been there. Even prior to COVID-19, U.S.-China relations have always sort of been a little tense. And I think with this particular uh, situation, you know, with a pandemic like that and the trauma associated with the virus and the human mind just needing a scapegoat, right? There's trauma involved, there's, you know, and then a scapegoat, just like 9-11, there's a trauma, we need a scapegoat. I think that sort of thing, if we can, everybody, like even a small posting on social media to say, I'm deracializing this virus. I do not agree with anyone who associates this virus with the Chinese or anything. This is a human virus. I think any kind of statement like that, that deracializes the virus is going to destigmatize our communities right now. Um, in the same way that anybody would stand up against Islamophobia, right? Or, or to, to stand up for Black Lives Matter. I think the same sort of um, energy that we put towards any kind of social movement to change minds, change hearts, um, to collaboratively create um, and organize around dismantling systems that create these sorts of racist situations to begin with. I think anything like that would be uh, really helpful. So um, we were looking at your website and you listed different approaches that you use for I guess, based on different clients. Can you explain maybe whichever approaches that you want to talk about? I think more therapists are beginning to adopt a social justice approach to psychotherapy, um, a systemic lens, perhaps, at looking at mental health symptoms, looking at something like race-based trauma, 
um, oppression-based trauma and taking like a pro-liberation approach to psychotherapy. I think that is something that I've been encouraging other therapists to take on that oftentimes um, mental health, uh, mental health uh, symptoms don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in the context of a relationship, a family, a community, and a larger society. And so if we look at symptoms in the context of a larger societal system, it's impossible to sort of separate that from systemic racism or, um, you know, systemic homophobia, systemic transphobia, systemic sexism, patriarchy, you know, all these things, um, systemic white supremacy, all these things impact the psyche of a client. And so my approach to this is examining internalized oppression, um, examining how a client is navigating the world and a, you know, sort of supporting this lived experience of oppression and talking about what it means to truly psychologically liberate from these structures and systems? How, how do I navigate systems that aren't necessarily designed for me to thrive and grow and be emotionally healthy, right? If there's a system that is designed for your life to be shortened in some way um, versus other people, right? If, if, if you are, if you, your life was, if society has designed things so that you don't have as much privilege as others, um, how can I navigate a world like that and still thrive and still be happy and still have an emotional life that's meaningful and and fulfilling? So I think uh, that 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 sort of understanding of um, societal systems and its impact on the human psyche um, is something that I really have adopted in in my practice, working with Asian Americans as well as LGBTQIA plus folks, immigrants, um, and so that's something that I. Um, yeah, I really feel very passionately about and, and and I hope that psychotherapy continues to grow in these areas. As a therapist through this time, I'm sure it's been at least traumatic or it's affected you in some way. How have you been answering those questions for yourself of keeping yourself happy, being um, being able to support yourself pretty much? Yeah. Yeah, I, that's always a question. Self-care, um, making sure that I end the day well, <laughs> I don't carry things with me, you know, um, taking care of my own mental health and my own emotional health and my physical health, all of those things, making sure I have my connections, my relationships, my community, um, making sure I still do things that I enjoy. I, you know, like I love playing with my son. I love um, doing things in the backyard. I love painting. I love, you know, I have all these hobbies that I, I still, you know, hold on to. So all those things sort of keep me alive and, and hopefully thriving as much as possible, even though, of course, my mental health has been affected by this pandemic and, and with all the, you know, the Asian hatred, um, it's impacted me. But I, I have my own therapist and I have my own friends and network and family. And so I, I try to keep healthy that way. I think I once saw a, I guess, a comic strip from The New Yorker that said, oh, the therapist goes, you go to therapy and then the therapist goes to their therapist and so on and so forth. But I think that's really important um, that I, I think everyone should have a therapist and I'm sure that you would agree as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it was a requirement for me to get my license. I think I had to have, have a certain number of hours of having seen a therapist before I got my license or to, to qualify for a license exam. So it is, I think most, I want, I want to say the, the majority of programs require that if you're in training to be a therapist, you also see a therapist for X number of hours before you can graduate. So it, it just that's a that's a cool thing, I think. I had no idea that that was a thing, but that's so cool. Also, does it feel like a grade if you're in therapy, but they're counting the hours? Does does it feel like you have to perform in that situation? I I didn't. I felt like, oh, good. I, it's my excuse to get some therapy and to have someone analyze my childhood and my and all my my emotional life. I had I had some support through my psychotherapy training, so it was a really positive thing for me. Okay, that's really cool. Um, can you speak to what it means um, to uncolonize psychotherapy? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I teach a class on this. The, the, the term uncolonizing, I learned from Tanya Rodriguez, which who is um, an indigenous uh, leader advocate. And she has a, I believe, a nonprofit called Global Decolonization. I might be wrong on, on the title. 
but the word uncolonize um, is meant to sort of steer people away from the word decolonize because she feels strongly that the word decolonize has been used too much as a metaphor and it's taken away from indigenous peoples and and their desires to actually uh, decolonize, like literally decolonize, like take the land back. Um, And so uncolonize is sort of a word that has to do with um, examining, for example, the institution of mental health that has for so long over history caused so much harm to Black, Indigenous, people of color, to LGBTQIA+, to immigrants, um, that it is an institution that has come from a European-American framework, and it has centered ideas like a separation of mind and body. So uncolonizing for me is decentering a lot of these ideas as the norm and allowing for all these other ways of being and all these ways of understanding mental health. Um, I think that every culture across history and across the world has, has, has a culturally sound way to manage emotional and mental health. And to sort of center the European sort of American way of understanding mental health and and to see it as the only way of understanding it is, um, in my opinion, just reinforcing a lot of supremacist thinking. And it doesn't allow for some of these like ancient traditions of understanding mental health that have so much wisdom, um, but also as a... um, you know, decentering certain notions, for example, how does a person manage sadness from the time of like Freud and a lot of these um, early thinkers in Europe about mental health, they would say, oh, you need to in, you know, individualize and like individuate and become your own person and go into a ther- therapist office and analyze your unconscious mind, all this separate from your family. Um, and, you know, the whole notion that you can't depend on it. There's a lot of toxic masculinity to the whole idea of like being an individual with your emotions and your shit belongs to you and it doesn't belong to anyone else. So you take care of you before you can be with anybody else. All these come from a European American mindset. And there's so many other cultures that don't believe that and don't think that that's great for mental health. Um, there are many cultures that believe that mental health is improved with improved relationships. So the key to good mental health is having repair and restoration in relationships and community, for example. Sometimes it's a reconnection to the environment. Um, Sometimes managing sadness, you don't do it by yourself. You do it with a friend or with, you know, in a relationship. So I think there are all these ways that are culturally sound across all these different cultures, but centering that European American framework and seeing it as the only way for number one, understanding how psychotherapy should be, what good mental health is, what's considered normal or abnormal. Um, Not too long ago, you could diagnose someone with homosexuality as, as like an illness. Right. And that has been decentered. So um, now we understand that sexual orientation or romantic orientation is, you know, on, a, you know, a multidimensional spectrum, for example, or gender. People used to see it in a binary that came from a Euro-American framework as well. And, and it was clinically diagnosable and, and done in these really horrific ways that have caused so much harm. So I think that uncolonizing psychotherapy for me is examining all these different aspects that have come from, a, from just a particular framework and sort of decentering it, making it just one framework out of many, many different frameworks and seeing that your client is multidimensional and may not benefit from just one framework, but like many, many different kinds of frameworks and helping your client liberate away from issues of oppression, for example. Um, and, and so for me, that is uncolonizing psychotherapy. If I, as a therapist, Um, You know, I am a person of color, right? And if I then use a European American framework to sort of examine another person, another client who is a person of color, and I'm just sort of using that framework to examine someone who is Black, Indigenous, people of color, right, person of color, I am then just sort of incongruent because then I'm just using that sort of white gaze or white lens and just sort of reinforcing the harm. So I think that part of my responsibility is 
deconstructing and sort of uncolonizing it so that I'm not perpetuating the harms that have gone on for so long. I mean, the American Psychiatric Association just put out an apology for, you know, all these <laughs> right hundreds of years of harm. Um, and so if I'm going to perpetuate this harm, like, what's the point, right? I, I need to uncolonize it and look at mental health differently, look at symptoms differently, look at clinical presentations differently, and allow for all these multiple ways of being in in, in the therapy room. That was a very long answer. <laughs> I don't know why you're penalizing yourself for that, though. I'm very much enjoying your long answers. I'm actually trying to figure out where my parents fall. Uh, because my parents are very much the only family you need are me, you, and your brothers, and your sister, of course. Um, but I think it's interesting because I I have a South Asian um, therapist right now. But when I, like my, this is my second therapist. My very first therapist was white and she kind of seemed to judge. I wouldn't say she did her best not to seem dismissive. But when I spoke about um, how much my family affects me, she was like, oh, that's a very, like, weird connection that you have to them and I was like you don't know what it's like to be a South Asian woman the eldest daughter um so I definitely think that we were talking about like uncolonizing psychotherapy I kind of wish I could subtly email this interview to um the center at her school and say hey maybe this is how we should do it better um but I think Shrita you wanted to say something oh yeah no I think the last part of your answer also really touched on how important the therapist's perspective is I think sometimes we have this idea that therapists are perfectly objective or it's all the same throughout. So I think on the topic of bringing your own perspective and your experience to the table, has being a part of the LGBTQ plus community allowed you to connect with your patients, maybe in like a different dimension? Yeah, I think that um, whole blanks, blank slate, right, mm -hmm. way of being that was from, again, Freudian times, right? I don't have a beard like Freud. I don't, you know, I'm not having my clients lie on a couch and I'm not this blank slate. I think a lot of feminist psychology that came up around the 60s and 70s and 80s actually challenged that a lot um, and saw that as very toxic masculine. Um, and that in reality, the therapist is a human being and that when it, when you, it is inescapable to have a human and relational experience with your client. And so that's the framework I also use is I have to be a human being with the people I'm with, and that includes my clients. And so there's, it's impossible being AI, right? I'm not artificial intelligence with, with all this objectivity. Um, so I think that the whole notion of self-disclosure in psychotherapy is um, often a debate. When is it time to self-disclose? And for me, it's important to self-disclose when it helps my client's healing. If my client has been isolated and doesn't know anybody else who's LGBTQIA+, and I may be the first person that they're coming out to, it's so important for me to say I am as well. And I have to watch what I, how I do it and, and the way that I do it and how it lands because that might scare them off or that might make them feel like uncomfortable or um, depending on the situation, it may be useful to self-disclose and share that with my client as a shared experience. And sometimes it may not be. And I just have to gauge again, what, what the open door is and where, where, where my client is. So I think self-disclosure, I think people argue about that a lot in psychotherapy, what's appropriate and what's not. Should therapists even be on social media? You know, there, there's all these debates um, that have come up in recent years. And I think more and more people are saying that actually we should be more human, human like, and it's, it's weird to not have a social media account and it's weird to, you know, I, so I have a social media account and a lot of my, who I am, my social justice beliefs, you know, a lot of who I am as a human being, it's on social media. So my clients can actually see it, but I think that becomes part of me and who I am as a therapist and as a healer. When you come to see me, this, this is who I am. And this is the relationship that I'm going to be um, sort of having with you in your healing process. I'm very surprised to hear that there is a debate about whether or not therapists can have social media because that seems more like a juror's uh, problem, you know, when they say, oh, you can't look at, you know, look at the news and you can't look at who you're judging. Um, so I guess that you guys are more heavily protected than I thought. <laughs> um, so what would you do differently in getting to where you are now? You mean as a therapist? Yeah, as a therapist. I would... 
um, have more confidence maybe because I remember starting out in my early 20s and it was a very different time in psychotherapy. I think that cross-cultural psychology was just beginning to take off in the 1990s. And the whole idea that, oh, wait, different people across different cultures, you know, have different ways of being like that was like a bizarre thing to even think about in the 90s. And so researchers were beginning to like, oh, let's let's do some cross-cultural research. Let's see if this thing is true across different cultures. How do we find universal research instruments? I think that I was insecure about coming from a multidimensional framework or uncolonizing psychotherapy. I felt like I really had to conform to what traditional psychotherapy was coming from a Western kind of Euro-American approach. But having had the experience of actually doing work with Asian and Asian American um, cultures, like it really, you know, it's really given me an understanding of how, you know, even something like working with LGBTQIA plus folks across different cultures, like there's no way to just stay with one particular lens. It's not going to serve my clients. And my notion of mental health and what it means has to sort of shift and become more multidimensional, or I'm not going to serve my, my clientele very well. And so I wish I had the confidence to believe in that early on and not question my intuition. So, so, um, you know, when, when I was younger in my 20s. Can you explain what inclusive discourse is? Um, so this is my work as a DEI consultant, not so much as a therapist. Oh, wait, real quick. Yeah. Could you explain to us what a DEI consultant is? Okay, so a DEI consultant is uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And I do it specifically for organizations. So it would fall under more like organizational psychology. Um, so I consult organizations on, for example, how to help managers become more inclusive. Um, what is diversity? Um, how do we manage ourselves in diversity? How do we manage differences in diversity? And then um, in terms of equity, it's sort of... Um, pushing for strategies that, for example, look at pay gaps between uh, different demographic um, or affinity groups, um, looking at hiring processes, like are these hiring processes fair? Are they not fair? Um, how are the promotional pipelines in an organization happening? Are they happening, happening fairly? Do, do, for example, men tend to be promoted more than everybody else? Or is one particular ethnic group getting promoted more than every, anyone else? And then how can we close this, um, this inequity in an organization? So that's the sort of thing that I, I um, sort of run workshops around. And I also do one-on-one -on -one consulting and, and help organizations do that. The DEI term formally in the 1990s was called multicultural education but it's evolved to become diversity equity and inclusion and so dei consultants is like their their whole industry a lot of therapists are in dei and i want to say that the first pioneers of multicultural education actually a lot of therapists were the first ones who actually talked about that because that was right around the time of cross cultural psychology taking off and so some of the early pioneers of the dei industry were actually therapists so that's sort of the connection between therapy and and dei Thank you so much for clarifying that. My mom actually works in HR, so like DEI is like something I've been hearing a lot more and something she's been getting more involved with over the past year. So that's the only reason I knew about it, but yeah. So the original question was, what is inclusive discourse? So I, I came up with this uh, title of a, of a workshop that I wanted to put together, and it was specifically for leaders that... Uh, are concerned with how divided things have become in society and how to manage these, these sort of very polarized debates and, and discussions and, and, and just how to man manage polarized discussions in general, uh, how to manage like severe differences in the workplace or, you know, just a, even amongst friends and families who have different political beliefs and it just gets really polarized and really, really difficult. And so inclusive discourse is taking from evidence-based uh sort of ideas in couples therapy and marital work, and then applying it to um, managing differences uh, in terms of uh, political debates. <laughs> um, so 
I think traditionally political debates come from a Greek tradition where um, you have an argument, there's discourse, and then you sort of argue, 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 and then someone wins the argument. And that's like the debate, right? That's sort of the, the Greek tradition. And it's sort of the premise of like Western democracy and all that. And I'm trying to say that what's missing is the the human relationship part of it, that rather than saying there's going to be a winner in this debate, um, it's more important to say that um, while we are having this discourse, that we can always land on our humanity and our relationship so that even if things get really awful, let's just keep landing on our humanity. So instead of making the argument about who wins, it's how can we take on this difference as a team? How can we take on this difference as a relationship? Um, because I think that relationship piece has sort of been severed and it's no longer there. Um, I've never seen Western society just sort of become so polarized. I don't know if um, some would say that a lot of these these huge civilizations fell apart because it got polarized at some point. I don't know if that's true, um, but I certainly see it happening now. Um, I'm not saying in any way that we should coddle racism or coddle homophobia or anything like that. I'm just saying that um, from my experience doing so much LGBTQIA plus advocacy work, if I didn't care about the other person as a human being or as or, or that the relationship was important, I wouldn't have stayed in the relationship long enough and persuaded and argued long enough for my argument to sort of get to the point where it changes the person's mind. Um, I've been in conversations with people who were so anti-LGBTQIA plus for years, like therapists who, for example, did conversion therapy for years and really believed in conversion therapy, right? If I didn't stay in conversation with, with this one particular therapist who believed in it so much for like, I think it was almost a decade of conversation over email, over chats, they finally got it and like ended their conversion therapy practice because they finally understood what the harm was. But had I not stayed in the discourse and had I not felt that human part of what we were doing, um, I don't think that I would have succeeded in terms of persuading the other side. So I think that if we want to have discourse, we've got to stay inclusive. We can't sort of just um, give up on these relationships, especially if they're friends and family. If we really want social change, if we want to really want to see social transformation, that the relationship is still important. And if we lose that humanity, I think we we sort of lose all argument anyway. So that sort of inclusive discourse. I, I'm very happy to hear that the conversion therapist closed their practice. I, I really enjoyed this conversation, actually, because I feel like I've learned so much. And I feel like a lot of times, I mean, sitting in a therapist room, I'm always wondering, what is my therapist thinking? And I know that you're not my therapist, but it kind of gives me some insight into the processes by which you guys also live your lives, but also help others. So thank you so much for the work that you've been doing. Um, and one of our final questions is, if you could turn back the time and talk to your undergraduate self, what would you tell them? Um, I would say that your GPA doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> um, and it's better to have as much fun as possible and that the learning actually comes from the relationships and the the like the experience of being with other people was like more valuable to me than like the I, 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 I barely remember anything I learned in college. Like I, I literally, but I remember the relationships and I remember what I learned in terms of um, personal growth. I just, I don't remember any of the, like the content of anything my professor said. So um, that's why I'm like, I don't think the GPA matters so much, <laughs> but um, I think everything else was, was sort of more important in the end. I haven't graduated yet, but I have also forgotten most of what I've learned. Um, so did you go into undergrad thinking that you were going to become a therapist? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh, okay. And you kind of followed through on that. That's really cool how you kind of like saw your goal and you stuck to it all the way through. Well, that was all the questions that I have, Shita. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think I'm good. I did learn a lot and I feel like I'm going to be talking about some of this stuff with my therapist now because I have like new terms and stuff. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And also, before we go, um, could you plug your podcast and tell us a little bit? Um, about what you do? 
My podcast is called Global Citizenship and Equity, and the first season has passed.、Um, but the second season is going to be、uh, two themes. I think the first theme, theme will be exploring anti blackness as a global issue and how it needs to be addressed on a global scale. And then the second、uh, sort of thing I'll be exploring is.、Um, You know,、um, just the whole notion of uncolonizing. And so I, I do an interview with、um, someone who's advocating for, for example, the,、uh, an, an indigenous group in the Philippines and, and what that looks like. So it's, it's sort of exploring a whole bunch of different things. But I think the next season will be specifically, you know,、uh, exploring anti blackness and critical race theory, as well as、um, indigenous life across the world and, and、um, uncolonizing and decolonizing. For those of you listening, we'll definitely、um, drop all those links on our social media as well as our website.、Um, thank you again for joining us, Cheryl. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, all. Welcome to the reflection portion of the episode. In case you missed it, this season we're lucky enough to have two of our interns, Alia and Sophia, joining us. So, guys, what did you think about the episode? Hi, this is Alia. So, one thing that really stood out to me during the episode was how, like, in the discussion, we were talking about how mental health affects the body. And I think in a lot of, like, Western culture, we don't really connect the two. Like, we're like, oh, if you're depressed, you're just sad. And, like, we focus on, like, the emotional aspect of it. But, like, I think, like, mental health affects your physical being so much. Like, anxiety. For me, I have it in my shoulders and, like, you have, my head hurts and my stomach hurts. Like, a lot of physical, like, Negative things come from me being anxious. Yeah. And as you want to continue, it's really interesting though, because like I heard, I mean, she mentioned too that、um, insurance companies actually like separate the two. Like you don't usually get、um, mental health in your insurance. insurance. And also,、um, I think, because、um, Myself personally, I also feel like whenever I'm anxious or whenever I'm in like panic mode or anything like that, I always feel this like very, very, very tight knot in my stomach that sometimes I feel like I'm puking. So I think like it's also good to notice that there's a connection in between like your body telling you that you're you're experiencing this, you're experiencing that, and you should like get like check get checked, I guess. So I think it's like. At least here in America, I think that it's a good idea to actually just connect the two. Like, mental health and the body are like not separate, it's one whole body, and that you should take care of it. Yeah, like your brain is just an organ. So, like, if you hurt your leg, it's like a part of your body is hurt. So, why, like, when your brain is hurt, like, quote unquote hurt, like, why is it not seen as a physical pain when it's literally like chemical imbalances in an organ of your body? Yeah, I think for me, like, one of the Like, scariest sort of physical manifestations of like stress and anxiety、um, was about so, like, the second semester of my freshman year, I was I was going through a bit of a rough patch, and I actually started having like sleep paralysis where I would kind of like wake up in the middle of the night and I felt like there was like a weight on me and I like couldn't move, like, I was awake, but my like body was still asleep. And that was more of like an extreme case. But like, I think as you guys mentioned, like, we tend to feel, I feel like anxiety more than a lot of other things too is like incredibly psychosomatic. I realized like once I actually moved to New York, like, I realized like my body would just, I would run hot a lot more often than I used to. And I would like, like taking cold showers, like really helped. And like this idea that like sort of addressing the physical manifestations of, Whatever mental health issue is bothering us can actually help us dealing with the mental health issue itself, right? So it's just this idea that, like, taking care of our body and our mind are kind of one and the same. Adding on to that,、um, I think that when I first started therapy, for instance, my parents were very much、um, confused, mostly because they were like, Oh, like, why are you going? I was like, For my mental health. And they were like, Have you considered going for walks? And I laughed really hard because I was like, you know, I feel like the solution is not always just taking a 10 minute walk. And sometimes for some people that does help.、Um, but for me, again,、um, I think Sophia, you mentioned a very taut, tight knot in your stomach. And、um, for me, it's like I have upper like, chest pain. And it's just, it feels like there's a lightning. And I'm like, oh, well, I have, I'm like, 
experience if I honestly I don't know what the difference would be between having a heart attack and like just me being anxious um because that is something that I've really struggled with but I remember that when I was younger I used to often visit the doctor um for like kind of I used to like physically be unable to breathe and I was always like bent over like heaving because I just couldn't catch my breath with anxiety um and I think that my parents didn't really know those symptoms of anxiety, which is interesting because I think that they've been through stressful situations themselves, but they were never sure how to respond to that, and they weren't sure, um, they didn't know that it was anxiety, and oftentimes when we went to the doctor, um, something related to what you mentioned, um, again, Sophia, is, um, like, insurance, my insurance wasn't the best at the time when I first started experiencing those symptoms, and so doctors that I had access to, they were very, um, quick and they were you know they made the visit as short as possible so no one ever explained to me that what I was experiencing was anxiety and there is actually um, there's a singer who I'm forgetting their name right now it's actually on the tip of my tongue um, but they have a song named anxiety um, oh logic do you guys know logic the rapper no okay shoot that does um, but Logic has a song called Anxiety, and I think in more recent times, too, a lot of pop artists have focused on um, just, like, stressful matters, and they make it... I think almost every big pop star has a song about dealing with stress, which I think is a really important emphasis and use of uh, social media to address those types of issues. Yeah, you talked about, like, feeling a pain in your chest when you had anxiety, and I feel that so hard, because it feels like you're gonna die, kind of, for me, and it's like, my brain is like, oh, just relax, but my body, like, would not do it, and it's, like, so scary, because you're trying to fight something, or your body feels like you're in danger and trying to fight something that's not there, because you're just sitting somewhere, and, like, you're internally kind of, like, breaking apart. Yeah, like, for me, when, I think, when I started going to college, everything was new, I, like, flew in from the Philippines, and, like, I know nobody here, so, like, I kept overthinking at night, like, who am I gonna talk to, how am I gonna eat tomorrow, like, what about my college stuff like my homeworks and stuff like that so like I started losing sleep like I slept like three hours max a night and that I think if you like connected to that like we all know that losing sleep is not like, very bad for you so like I think if insurance companies could see that that like when you're too, uh, when you have you're too anxious you're not getting enough sleep and then that leads to like your body actually shutting down so like so if the if it's as simple as that then why cannot why can't they see that like mental health and like the physical body goes hand in hand because I think that we all know I mean not all of us not all of us are brave enough to say it but insurance companies are actually just for profit Uh, but if they can see that if they can see that 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 mental health and the body goes hand in hand and like having a like a unhealthy mind can actually influence like your body your your body will also start to fail so I think that if insurance companies can only see that, then it would make a big difference. Because I, I read somewhere that um, a lot of people don't actually um, go into therapy or go like seek mental, he- mental health help because like, they know that it's going to be like out of, out of their pocket and nobody would want to pay for something like that. Like, um, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I think that's one of the good things that the pandemic has done because people started like um putting more i mean shedding more light into um mental health and people started going into therapy which i think despite everything that happened during the pandemic it's a good thing that has come out of it yeah and i think you bring up a really interesting point with the insurance because it i think it sheds light on this like deeper stigma that's really existed right for such a long time around mental health and i think that's almost how I mean, not that insurance companies are like particularly popular against uh, amongst people, but I think it's kind of been the way that they've been able to kind of justify that separation between mental health and physical health being like, oh, well, this is something that's just like in your head and like you just need to like take a walk or, or talk it out. And again, as you said, like with the pandemic was such a pressure cooker in so many ways. And I think for a lot of people, they were just like, no, like there are just there's things that are like unavoidable and that kind of need to be dealt with. And I remember my therapist even telling me like she got so many like 
new clients. Like there's clients that she's only done virtual therapy with that she's never even seen because there were just so many new people. But then that also kind of sheds light on the like that's on the demand side, right? But on the supply side, there's also like a shortage of therapists. Like there aren't like there isn't like a really great infrastructure to accessing mental health help because because of for-profit insurance companies that have kind of like pushed mental health care into the margins. But as you said, hopefully that's changing and getting better. Yeah, like um I actually started therapy during the pandemic and it's just because like sophomore year of college was rough, but like yeah, so when I started it, it was literally, like, me talking on Zoom with, like, this random stranger that I have never met before, have never seen, and it was kind of hard, because, like, how do you trust, like, this person that you've never met to, like, with all your, like, secrets, basically, right? So it was kind of, like, harder, I think, to get into therapy for the first time, especially because, like, I'm, like, a, I'm Indian, so it's, like, like, the whole, like, Indian culture behind it all, it's, like, kind of, like, scary going in, and, like, it was, like, a battle trying to even get therapy, but luckily, like, my parents and I had a conversation and they're like, if that's what you need, then like, that's what you need, right? So yeah, it was definitely harder getting into therapy during the pandemic, but it's also very necessary, I feel. Um, Speaking on therapy, so I finished one and a half years of therapy in about three months ago, which is really nice. And I was very, I am very proud of that accomplishment. Um, But one of the things that my counselor had kind of gone with me towards the end of like my sessions was do you know when to come back to therapy? And I had always said, you know, I I know that there are these life events, that if they happen, then I will come back to therapy. There's these situations that might come up and I will come back to therapy. So I thought I had it all down pat, right? Um, But in recent weeks, I've been feeling stressed and I was like, what happened to my one and a half years of, of therapy? And I, you know, I felt kind of frustrated with myself because I felt like I've done so much work, but I feel like I'm not... I'm trying my best to use it, but it doesn't feel like it's enough. Um, so I'm actually very proud of myself today. I, you know, I made a consultation to get back into therapy. And that's something that, um, like, when I had first finished therapy, my parents were really happy. And I I didn't mean to tell them because I didn't want them to think, oh, well, she's cured now. Like, we can we can change some things around and, like, bring her back. And that's not what happened. That's not why I'm going back. But um, I think part of, I think I had my own stigma of, I finish and now I'm going back. But I think there is, you know, something to be said about having the strength to realize when you need it. And I applauded you for pursuing that um, at whatever time of need you had. So you talked about how um, you kind of felt like therapy wasn't working. And unfortunately, like, that's kind of why I stopped therapy, like, earlier than I expected to. And there are, like, other reasons that I won't really get into right now. But, like, it was just so scary to, like, sit there and like week after week talk about something and like feel like you're not getting better actually I actually felt like I was getting worse because like extra things are happening because of like being home during a pandemic and you know all that stuff so it's like so I think it's so brave and like kind of inspiring Zarya that you actually went back to therapy because I really want to but like I don't really know how right now so actually through our school you can actually make an appointment on um the school health portal they have appointments as soon as Friday you know um, I think the biggest, I think the hardest part is genuinely starting, and I think that goes for anything. And I know it's, it's such a cliched thing, but genuinely, like, catch yourself off guard and just be like, oh no, I'm calling CAPS. Um, for anybody listening, CAPS is our, um, I'm not gonna butcher the name of the acronym, um, but it's our counseling services at Stony Brook. Yeah, and I think so much of therapy is like, it's finding the right fit. I know I got really lucky that, like, I, basically the first person I saw like worked out for me but I think also kind of sorry you talking about like kind of being frustrated at the notion of going back in like I think it's important that we remember that that stigma that surrounds mental health is so deeply established that it can sometimes also become internalized like I think everyone who's ever gone to therapy or even hasn't gone to therapy has had that moment where they're like well, the things that I'm dealing with aren't as bad as the things that other people are dealing with. So do I really need it? Like, can I just like figure out a way, right? And that's such a stigmatized kind of train of thought. But because we've grown up around it, it like almost becomes a part of that little like annoying voice in our heads. So um it's like, it's very important to show ourselves kind of compassion in those moments and like remind ourselves that we deserve to be happy and peaceful and all of that stuff. But For me, one of the more interesting 
Um, actually, everything was interesting, but one of the takeaways that I kind of took home is um, Cheryl discussed different types of, I guess, therapy, therapy styles that different therapists use. So I kind of went, she has a website and I kind of went through her website and I was like, hmm, which one did my therapist use to analyze me? Um, I can't figure it out because obviously I'm not a therapist, but um, even just learning about those styles was very interesting because I didn't realize that when people talk about how they choose a therapist, I mean, some people have gone to therapy for a long time, which is um, a really great thing. And they know how to figure out like, I'm compatible with this person, I'm not. And I wonder if for those people, they're able to distinguish what kind of style works best for them um, rather than a therapist figuring it out as they go along, if that makes sense. And I think it's important to note that um, I think psychotherapy, I mean, therapy in itself is preventative care. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to think that you're not okay to go into therapy. I mean, we all need ter- therapy. And also, I, I remember you, Zarya, saying that when you first started out therapy, I think, that you had like a, a, a white man like as, a, as your therapist, therapist and that he didn't really understand like being a an Asian woman and the, the eldest in the family and just all the pressure that comes with that. It was a white woman. And actually, even with therapy now, I'm trying to figure out like, oh, shoot, does do we have any counselors who are Asian, South Asian specifically? Because I think that um, Asian culture tends to get generalized into this one mass. Um, but it's it's a very different culture depending on like, where your parents are from specifically or like where you yourself are from and yeah I think a lot of people tend to just group us all together and it's I like I mean this is a side thing but I like when forums actually break down um like what what kind of quote-unquote Asian are you um because I'm Pakistani and so I don't feel I mean I check off Asian but I'm like I don't know if this like if people understand can I write down other Pakistani I don't know yeah with all of this, it kind of makes you think that I hope, like, you get matched into, like, a therapist, just, like, how you can get matched in Tinder, you know? Mm-hmm. I hope it's just that easy to get a therapist that works for you. <laughs> Tinder isn't even that easy, though, so <laughs> not that I'm on Tinder, mom, if you're watching this. Bumble isn't that easy either, guys. <laughs> just for your reference. And Shrita... Can add on to that? Oh, I don't, I don't care anymore. I've, I've accepted my solitude. It's fine. Um, but anyway, not that we have to get into that. Um, do we have any like finishing thoughts? Yeah. Like we just touched upon the fact that we talked about psychotherapy a lot during this episode. And I think one thing that like I had psychotherapy too. So I think what's really, what was really hard for me was just like saying it. Like, cause I feel like when I said something, I was like giving life to it. It's no longer a thought. Like it's like a whole like idea out there. It's so frustrating, like, scary to do that. But I think that was so necessary. Like, one thing I did get out of therapy is, like, once I said it, it felt like I felt lighter because, like, okay, so, like, this is real. I'm not making it up. I'm not doing it for attention. It's, like, a real thing that's happening. And now I can, like, I can move forward and come with a, come up with a plan to, like, better it. And, I, yeah, I think that's why, like, psychotherapy is so important. I think that's a great note to end it on. So thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with some new episodes for you. And in the meantime, have a good time. Take care of yourself. Drink lots of water. Sleep. Yeah, that's it. Bye. Drink lemon water. I heard it's good for you. Bye. Read the transcript for this episode at QueerDiagnosis.com. Query diagnosis is Alia Syed, Jessica Pathmanathan, Katie Liang, Lara Castaneda, Serena McDaniel, Sophia Peralta, Jameson Coleman, Shrita Miriboyna, and me, Zaria Sheikh. Music is composed and provided by Kara Dugan and Adam Fredette. This podcast is supported by listeners like yourself. Our Patreon is patreon.com backslash query diagnosis. Rate and subscribe Queer Diagnosis wherever you like to listen.